Gillies, BC of Glasgow Caledonian University. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast podcast with us. Um, Glasgow Caledonian obviously has a massive commitment to social mobility. Tell us a little bit about why it's so important to you and all of the staff at Glasgow Caledonian. Well, thank you, first of all, for uh, having me on this podcast, Justine. I'm happy to be here. Um, and uh, well, when we were founded in 1875 as a science college for women from poorer backgrounds, the motto of the Glasgow College was for the common wheel. Now, that motto has now become the university's mission for the common good. And two of the core drivers of our strong sense of purpose as a values-led whole university community are firstly to continue that uh, long tradition of widening participation, but to do it with quality outcomes. And of course, ours are very good indeed. You know, 46% of our students, for example, are like me, first in their family to go to university and take that transformational journey that higher education uh, takes you on. And 91% of our students are actually in employment or study after six months with us. And we've got 81% degree completion. Um, these are really good outcomes for our kind of university, sometimes called a modern university. And our dropout rate in first year is only a whisker above uh, traditional institutions like Glasgow University or Strathclyde. But secondly, um, social mobility is important to all of the staff and students because of the world leading social innovation research that we're all engaged in, because we want to have a social impact with this research. And we are in the top 50 universities in the world uh, for this social impact as judged by the Times Higher. So tell us That's, a little bit about that then. That sounds really, I mean, it's a really powerful statistic. Well, it, 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 it really is, and it's so important to the whole institution, which started out as a teaching institution, but developed, you know, this creative uh, research program, this curiosity uh, for trying to impact the social inequalities that are, are prevalent throughout the city of Glasgow. As, as your listeners will know, we have some of the worst health inequalities in Glasgow in Europe. Um, 39,000 of our children uh, are, are labelled as in extreme poverty. So there's a real issue with health and social inequalities in the, in the city of Glasgow. And the staff and students are just, were just absolutely desperate to engage in focused research that was internationally excellent, but that actually drove uh, redistribution of resources locally uh, and, and offered opened up opportunities for life skills development that would allow individuals as well as groups and communities to uh, overcome their poor life chances, their poor health chances, and to um, and to engage in employment. So it's 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 a journey uh, that the whole institution is engaged in travelling and working together as a big team uh, to deliver real change for social benefit. And I know it's really at the heart of you know the DNA of Glasgow Caledonian. So tell us a little bit about the students that, that come into the university. Tell us a little bit about their specific challenges, but also, you know, for these wider communities, you, you, you talked about this somewhat. Um, the work that you were able to do with them to help 
them still, nevertheless, in spite of any challenges, be able to have the chance to, to come to Glasgow Caledonian and get into higher education. Tell us a little bit about how you help communities overcome those barriers. Well, uh, first of all, about, about the students. So uh, as I mentioned, a lot of our students are, uh, come from pretty challenged backgrounds, difficult backgrounds. So when they, they come to us, they come with a lack of confidence with, with some of them with poor communication skills. Um, but my goodness, uh, we provide an environment of support for them and they very quickly uh, become adept confident, resilient individual student learners and our employers and in the private and public sectors tell us they love our students because they're confident without being arrogant. They'll turn their hand to solving any problem uh, in the public or private sector, do anything uh, to advance the mission of, the, um, of their place of employment. That's really important to us. So they come with poor levels of confidence and they they grow in confidence. They leave us knowing that they are change makers in the world, um, but they're not over arrogant. Or so as we would they say, grab those opportunities, don't they? And, and they, really understand the value of them. They absolutely do. And, and as they'll say themselves to me, we're not up ourselves, Pamela, as a university or as students, you know, we, we, you know we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get engaged. Yeah. Working as a university with our local communities is so important because we deliver 12,000 jobs a year and a billion pounds to the local economy. So as an anchor institution, you know, as a university, like, like every other university, we're terribly important to the local economy. But we, we don't see ourselves as at the top of the ladder. We see ourselves as at the heart of a, an ecosystem of education in our city. And that's terribly important. It's terribly important to tackle inequalities in educational attainment from the earliest of age, because we know from Scottish research recently um, that by the age of just five years, uh, there's a 10 to 13 months attainment gap between the rich and the poor in Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's horrendous. Uh, and you just can't sit at the top of a ladder saying, well, you know, we're at the, the, the high end of, of, of this educational food chain. You've really got to get involved in helping uh, to support the educational system as a whole. So 12 years ago, we started the Caledonian Club with nursery, primary and secondary schools from the poorest parts of the city. And the club allows parents as well as children to come into the university on a regular basis, get their university cards, work with our staff and student mentors to develop new life skills. And some of these are very basic, even for the parents, it's reading and learning about their times tables. And since we started this 12 years ago, we've served more than 20,000 young people and 5,000 parents. And it's had a massive impact not just on the individual's life chances and the family's life chances, but on teacher attitudes to what can be achieved when you wrap your arms around folk uh, who have the talent, but it just needs to be unlocked. And, and we, do you, you think through some of that work for parents, again, it's, you mentioned the teachers just then, that it's also reframed in their own eyes as well, what their expectations are for their children and what they might be able to achieve. 
Absolutely. We, we felt it was fundamentally important to involve the whole family in the process and to uh, excite teachers, to shift teacher attitudes to what can be achieved when we genuinely work within this uh, collaborative, cooperative ecosystem of education, see the, the whole system in the round. And let's be honest, Justine, universities have massive resources that they can use and direct uh, for social benefit. And, and this is one way in which we've done it. The, the research element is important. Our research is governed by the United Nations Social, uh, um, Sustainable Development Goals. And we, we started our new framework way before anybody thought this, this would be important in 2017. Mm -hmm. And we are engaged in action research or demonstration projects across the city. But one, one I think that's important is in a poor park called Milton in the north of the city. And we've established a common good research lab there, uh, working with local people to demonstrate how this redistributing financial resources and other kinds of resources locally can genuinely improve resilience in communities, social inclusion and improve life chances and quality of life with access to health care. And what does that mean practically, um, redistributing resources? And you talked about some of the, the areas. So, so what changes on the ground to, to make that difference? It sounds really interesting. So rather, rather than um, uh, uh, this, you know, the, let's say the city council who are partners in, in these kinds of initiatives, holding the cash or universities holding mm -hmm. the cash and doling it out as part of a yep. project, you actually just give the money to the local groups and, um, and see what happens. And mm -hmm. it's amazing uh, how much uh, res responsibilities taken on to local shoulders and accountability for how the money is spent and the amount of extra activity that you can gain just by offering the cash resource. We've been really surprised by this. But then but, presumably backed up, you know, the, the key success is if it's backed up with providing that capacity to help them take the right decisions and, you know, yeah. um, you know in, in a sense, they'll know their priorities and it's about you know providing the the structure within which to have those priorities reflected in that spend and helping them get where they want to get to successfully. Absolutely right. So it's supporting local empowerment, local decision making, um, rather than centralising that. And you know there are examples throughout history of where that <laughs> is successful. We know it's a successful approach, uh, but it requires a lot of trust. And you have to build up the social capital uh, in the communities that you're working with. And you have to give up those those who hold the resources have to give up a wee bit of the power mm -hmm. over these it's resources. It's exactly how we did um, opportunity areas in the English school system um, when I was Secretary of State for Education. And I think from we did exactly this this thing. There was there was some resourcing. It was about local education systems along with communities and businesses kind of setting their own priorities because they were all very different and had different leveling up challenges but I think the key for me was that same ethos we didn't want to just devolve it and then wash our hands so my DFE officials were involved in all of the projects I wanted to have co-ownership of it with them um, so that we were all in the same team um, trying to reach the same goals and I think that's one of the reasons why it probably worked. It was everybody pulling together. Yeah, 
And I think it's important in these demonstration initiatives that you, you have a really good action research programme of evaluation yes. so you know what's working and what's not working. Um, Do you think that's that sort of project's likely to continue? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, but, you know, in, in my career, I've been involved in these kinds of action research projects in a number of areas from HIV prevention with sex workers setting up their own uh, initiatives all over the world to setting up with Muhammad Yunus, um, uh, a nursing college in Dhaka, which is run as a social business. Uh, and it's just extraordinary, you know, the extraordinarily exciting to be involved in these projects, which can be scaled up and can run independently of, of central bodies and institutions. I think what's interesting on the opportunity areas is, is how I left the DfE and, and went on to, to do the social mobility pledge, but um, they, they kept motoring, so they were totally empowered and had got the momentum and, and actually... I think within Stoke, you know, that one has set up a charitable foundation so it can keep doing all of its work irrespective of, you know, um, whether or not it gets continued government support. And I think it was quite a good example of how once you've empowered those local structures to get going, then actually they kind of just keep on doing what they want to do, don't they? And, and that is yeah. success in my book. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's hard with, with the wonderful uh, nursing college in Dhaka in Bangladesh, you know, which our staff and students had supported over a five-year period so very well. We all then had to step back and say, okay, it's yours. You know, we're here to hold your hands if you need our friendship and support and expertise, but this is yours. Run with it. And it's, it's, it's glorious. Uh, to see it sustained and working and to see the, the pride uh, on the faces of our staff and students who've, who've helped that work uh, to, to become a reality. And I think, I mean, close to home, back at the university itself, you must be obviously really proud of the, the many projects, actually, that are, that are underway at Glasgow Caledonian to help widen access and participation, drive social mobility in communities, as you say, working right upstream. If you were maybe pointing to one or two that you, you really feel the most proud of, which do you think they'd be? You've you mentioned a couple already, but what other ones would you really point to that you think have really had impact? Oh, it's, 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 har it's hard to <laughs> it's pick out to these. I mean, the, the, the Caledonian Club has been extraordinary um, and developing into the advanced higher hub, you know, where we're offering mm -hmm. uh, students from the, you know, Schools that are really struggling, struggling, the chance to come to us, do their advanced hires. And, and just last week, I heard that one of our, our students had been successful in getting into Cambridge to read economics, you know, from a really tough background. You know, that brings just a smile to my face and to all our staff's face. So those kinds of, of initiatives are, are, are joyful. I think setting up the Eunice Research Centre on social business and health, all of our health work and and working in connection with Health Protection Scotland to, to really see if we can tackle the inequalities in health gives, gives, gives me a, a sense of, of pride of the wonderful work our, our staff uh, do, the work that we've done with the African Leadership University to create a new college to deliver ethical leaders for Africa. With us as a quiet, silent, supportive quality assurance partner, that, 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 that makes me proud of our staff's ability to do that work and yet not be recognised necessarily for it 
in the press, in the media, but just to do it quietly and know that it's having an effect. But I think, I think the thing I'm most, I probably am most proud of is the development of the whole of the institution as a kind of values-led, creative, dynamic, research-led and informed university with, with this social purpose at its heart, a university that genuinely delivers outcomes and impact on that social purpose. And because that comes from the combined efforts and work and inspiration of our staff and students. And it's, it was a long journey from being a teaching institution largely in 2006 to now in 2015 being recognized uh, for the focused areas of research that we do that inform everything else uh, even our curriculum for the common good across the institution is informed by our research and our values. So I think it's it's that journey towards an, a university that really is driven by its culture. But when you marry that, because we know culture eats strategy for breakfast, when you marry that with a fabulous strategy that the staff and students have written themselves, uh, that's about delivering social innovation, then you 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 have really an inspiring environment in which to work. I think it's it's fantastic and it's really why we're so delighted, you know, on the social mobility pledge to be able to work with you on an opportunity action plan. And part of that is also looking ahead to where you develop all of this work next. Where do you where do you see Glasgow Caledon Caledonian going next on and the wider leveling up agenda, social mobility? You've done so much, but I mean, you are a, an institution that's constantly innovating, raising the bar. Where where do you feel feel your next steps are going to be? I think um, I think the technological advances that have been, if you like, accelerated because of the COVID pandemic the move to online synchronous and asynchronous learning, but at, at a very high level. I think that will actually uh, help democratise higher education and really help us with delivering our work-based uh, educational offer. We were very committed to co-creating programmes from certificates, diplomas, degrees, to masters, to PhDs in work, with employers and with local managers to deliver the actual skill set they need to enhance their productivity, promote their culture, promote happiness in their institution. And, and I, I, I genuinely believe that the, the digital advances we've made recently will allow us to scale up that activity hugely. And that's very exciting to me. And that activity can work with small and medium sized enterprises as well as big industrial partners and with the public sector. And I'm excited to see the way in which artificial intelligence and our online technologies can really help us uh, to promote our health services in a much more efficient and effective way and en enhance the, the quality of provision in some of the poorest parts of our nation. So, I mean, it's really exciting. And I think the point on businesses is very well made. One of the reasons I launched the Social Mobility Pledge was really to get more businesses thinking differently about the role that they can play in spreading opportunity. And that absolutely means connecting up with that wider talent pool precisely in universities like Glasgow Caledonian. So many of them are just 
really beginning to think more seriously about this. I, I, I found in my discussions with, I mean, hundreds of chief execs, a lot of them have effectively moved on to a much more strength-based approach on recruitment, but in a way it's not really been so formalized. And so what we want to do now through bringing all of the universities and the businesses together is to really try and get our arms around, well, what would that look like? If we had a more structured approach to all of this, what would that look like? And I think it's long overdue in a way, because I think we fail to recognize all the strengths that often more challenging upbringings give you, you know, resilience, having to bounce back from challenges, having to work out how you overcome problems. You know, I, I will always feel that growing up in a working class background, you know, my dad was unemployed, that that that, that experience and, and if you like how it helped me develop is one of the reasons I was able to get on in life. Um, mm. Yeah, there were barriers with it, but actually there were also there were also elements of it that really helped me develop. And I think a lot of employers increasingly see that. The question is, how can you really, how can you harness it all and understand it better? Yeah, absolutely. So Pamela, I mean, you are obviously now the vice chancellor um, doing an amazing job at Glasgow Caledonian. I mean, really sort of, as you say, putting values at the heart of the institution. It, it's an exciting time. Tell us a little bit about the journey that you've had your personal path. I mean, did you always want to be in education? You know, charters well, <laughs> how you end up where you are now. Well, I, as, as I mentioned, I was first in my family to go to university. Um, and I went to Aberdeen University. And it was a struggle to begin with, I'll be honest, um, uh, because I, I lacked confidence. I, there, there wasn't anyone in my family who'd ever been to university. I wasn't entirely sure um, what I was doing. I came from a very modest family background as well. I certainly didn't have the right clothes, Justine, you know, <laughs> and we had very little money. Really, there was very little money. But my first degree was in physiology, and I decided I would graduate with an ordinary degree because I just felt I just, just didn't have the confidence to go on, you know. And I, and I did graduate with an ordinary degree, but my tutors then came back to me and said, for goodness sake, you've had distinctions all the way along. Uh, we want to enrol you in a master's degree. It was quite unusual in those days to get into a master's degree if you only had an ordinary degree, mm -hmm. but they did. And maybe, and but maybe for people listening south of the border, just, just explain what an ordinary degree means. Well, it's, it's just a BSc without honours. So in Scotland, right. you do a BSc ordinary degree after three years, you get your degree. If you go on to honours, that's four years. So I, I came out uh, with an ordinary degree in three years. And as I say, you wouldn't normally be enrolled in a master's, but uh, my tutors encouraged me. Uh, I enrolled in a master's in education and philosophy, and I found I absolutely loved the research element. And I was really encouraged uh, by my lecturers to go on. And then that I was really a turning point by the sounds of it. It was. And I, I came across this subject called social medicine. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I could never be a medic. But, oh, I'd love to engage in social medicine. I won a fellowship to go down to the University of Nottingham Medical School to train uh, in community medicine and uh, eventually became a public health epidemiologist working in the late 80s on HIV AIDS prevention and control. 
um, worked for the World Health Organization all over the world and um, was extremely fortunate to be able to take up these opportunities. But I did need people to tell me I was good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, and encouraged me to take the opportunities that came forward. So I did need pushing a bit. I was always... Who were those people? Well, they, they were the lecturers uh, who were supporting me, supervisors of my research. Um, and to be honest, I don't think... Um, I really understood that I was quite bright enough until I won a Hartness Fellowship to go to Harvard. And it, it was so then, you, and I was nearly you know, forced. You're getting all these distinctions. Being, I know. Encouraging your masters doing that, nailing that, getting, but then still sort of feeling maybe you're not quite clever enough. That's right. I had I had my PhD by then. I was a senior <laughs> lecturer. But, you know, there was just that wee bit of me that thought, oh, gosh, maybe I'm not good enough. And then my mum and my two aunties came to uh, Radcliffe College to, I had, I was a, a, a visiting scholar at, at uh, Cabot House Radcliffe College during the time I was a Hartness Fellow. And, and it was just wonderful um, because my mum and my two aunties came to visit me and they all stayed in my rooms. And, you know, it was so exciting. Uh, and, um, uh, Umberto Eco took over my rooms after I left as a visiting scholar. So that's a great, that's a great story, actually. And yeah. and I finally realised maybe I've got some good ideas after all. But you know, getting my first rung on the lecturer ladder was yes. really hard because I was in a department of uh, community medicine and public health in a medical school. Uh, yeah, no other women, of course. One or two lecturers in the medical school who were women, but hardly any role models. And I applied for my first lectureship in 1984. Um, and I was shortlisted into the final six. And I was so excited. And my head of department, a very tall, imposing man, I really liked him. He came to me the night before the interviews and said, ah, look, Pamela, there's this lad from Belfast. Um, I'm really wanting to appoint him tomorrow. So I'm going to ask you to withdraw from the interview panel uh, application. And then he left, he left, and I thought, well, you know, I didn't burst into tears. My mum had taught me well, you know, gird your loins. Phoned, phoned my mum, uh, but I also had support from a colleague at the, uh, in the department. And my mum said, look, you know, go for it, Pamela. If you're not going to get the lectureship, just go do a great interview and you'll, yeah. you'll learn from the experience. And that's what my, my uh, colleague in the department also told me. And I, I did that. I went in, did my best. And uh, at the end of the day, they, they appointed two lecturers, me and this <laughs> other lovely guy from uh, Northern Ireland. And uh, that was the start of my career. But it, it, it was shocking in retrospect. Yes. And it made me very aware as I um, managed to uh, gain leadership roles uh, in universities, you had to be very mindful of uh, of what was going on in terms of talent management mm -hmm. and in terms of how you promoted women uh, in in these kinds of medical school contexts, but across the board in universities. And on so a, a different day, with you know a, a Pamela that's not got quite so much confidence then developed, you'd have yeah. probably thought. Mm don't really want to damage my relationship with him. So maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe I'll just do, I'll wait for another role and, and things turn out different, don't they? They do, but you see, I had a feisty mum, you know. <laughs> I, she, she really helped me along. That's, that's very hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> 
she taught but, me well. But it shows you, you know, the amount of um, of support and encouragement that, uh, you know, young and old from the kind of background I came from, the kind of background you came from, how much encouragement you do need along the way. Uh, and we've, we've certainly uh, take, paid a lot of attention to that GCE over the years. And do you think, I mean, just going back to your point, which is really well made on academia, do you think there are sort of particular challenges to progressing in academia because it, it's so much maybe around how many papers you've had published, you know, citations, all of that, and yet actually a lot of being successful in that career is about everything else that you can bring to those academic-based roles that isn't just about, if you like, the, the intellectual piece of the job. Yes, I, I think that's a really a, a really good point. And I but I do think that promotions uh, uh, policies and approaches now are taking a broader approach mm -hmm. uh, to what is valued in universities. You know, you know, universities are now questioning what their purpose is uh, in society. And so they have to encourage their staff to deliver across a broader agenda of skills. And so there's greater recognition in that now, I, I believe, about the panoply of skills that are required for promotion. And I think you'll, you'll find there has been progress. Certainly there's been progress on gender pay gaps and, and uh, diversity within the academy. I think that's right. And I think it's always a journey, isn't it? And in the same way that almost you've seen business have to steadily get to grips with the, the gender inequality and obviously there's way to go on that but actually distinct progress made I think you're also seeing similar questions and journeys being gone down on you know BAME but also wider social mobility and socioeconomic diversity and I think you know there's a real understanding now perhaps it wasn't there before that diversity is good and diversity of thought for universities is obviously absolutely crucial for you know institutions that are about education and knowledge sharing and research you know you're at the heart of being able to you know really reap all of those great ideas that staff have got yeah but you you have to stand up and be a role model as a vice chancellor and 40 percent of our professors are now female but that was a journey that's taken us 10 years you know uh, to achieve um, to have us, uh, you know, we, we are on the journey with our, our BAME diversity as well uh, and have had an anti-racism group in the university for a couple of years. And, you know, I was so shocked and horrified, Justine, when I discovered from some of my BAME colleagues that, that you know, not everything was as good as I thought it was in the institution mm -hmm. with regard to racism. I was totally horrified and shocked. You have to shine a light on these areas and you have to be um, brave to listen to what's really happening yeah, and totally. do something about it. Because it's about asking and then understanding and I have long felt that on social mobility part of the challenge is sometimes you know a lack of lived experience of people who are trying to kind of make the system better inevitably almost means that they can't bring that into the equation so it's all the more important that you reach out to people who do have that lived experience and can give you that insight and and actually as you going back to your earlier point about how you get things changed sustainably then making them part of the change themselves 
yeah. so that it's being worked on together rather than change that's being done to a group by another one which frankly I just don't think I don't think works um yes yeah. yeah I think you're spot on there so I think I think it's been difficult in the past it's been there has been a focus on research monies achieved and research publications but I think we're moving moving uh, away not away from that there's still a need for that but as part of a wider panoply of skills that are required for promotion I think it's a good thing. And if you were talking to a much uh, younger Pamela back perhaps you know still yet to go to university or, or sort of in those earlier years um what advice do you think you'd give to yourself now with all of that experience that you've got? Oh my goodness, that is, um, I'm always a, a person who thinks in the now and forward rather than back. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's one thing I, I, should, I should have said to my younger self, look, slow down, down a bit on all this action mm -hmm. research. I was very focused on community action, community engagement, traveling a lot. Slow down a bit give yourself uh, time for more reflection and time to write more. And I, 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 I think that's what I would tell my younger self. But would I to write more? Tell me yeah. about that. Well, um, I, I, have, I have written many publications in, in, in my career, but I think uh, having more time to reflect and to put my ideas on paper rather than simply always being at the front line, line engaging in activity uh, would, have, would have possibly provided me with more demonstrable roadmaps uh, and examples for effective change mm -hmm. that allows for scaling up um, over time. So I, I, I could have done more if I had collected more evidence, reflected and written more um, because policy change, let's hope that the majority of policy change is evidence-based and collating uh, that evidence is absolutely critical in the process of convincing others to follow a certain path. And, you know, make no mistake, it was exciting being on the front line. I mean, it was challenging, emotionally exhausting, um, in the HIV, during the HIV epidemic in the late 80s and 90s, um, you know, was distressing, but it was also energizing uh, to be at the forefront of working with others just to tackle these problems. There's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing that gets you up faster in the morning than working with others, uh, with a group of others who trust each other to try and do the best you possibly can. But you need to also be able to step back and say, oh, goodness, here are, the, here are the key focal points that will help us move in a, in a positive directory, direction towards something that will have a lasting social benefit and change. And um, I wish I'd done more of that. Maybe when I retire, Justine, I'll <laughs> be able to reflect and write more because I can't imagine really ever retiring i was going to say i i just i'm not sure that you and retirement are two two things that are ever going to meet but i think your point about taking the time to just step back a little bit and take stock yeah. is really really important especially when you're young because 
things are always moving so fast and time feels slower in a way because next year feels like a million years away but you, you kind of want to get everything done that you want to get done and, and it's all a big race in a sense but mm-hmm. you know the danger is you're so focused on when next when next that you actually yeah. don't really harvest all of the amazing experience that you're getting from where you are right now and and that you kind of move on without understanding that it's valuable and just crystallizing it in your mind can be mm. hugely important so eloquently put justine much better than i managed <laughs> well it's your idea that's why you should write it down <laughs> but no it's a brilliant bit of advice um for people listening to this pamela gillis it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast thank you so much we're really proud to be working with glasgow caledonian um in the social mobility pledge so looking forward to taking all of that work forward and making sure that through that work we do take stock of all that best practice and that we can hopefully share it far and wide thank you thank you so much justine it's a privilege to work with you and your team 